regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. with Datacast and today I have the pleasure to speak with Paru Pandey. Paru is a data science evangelist at h2o.ai. She combines data science, evangelism, and community in her work. Her emphasis is to break down the data science jargon for the people. Prior to working at h2o.ai, she worked with Tata Power India, applying machine learning and analytics to solve the pressing problems of load shoutings in India. She is also an active writer and speaker and has contributed to various national and international publications including uh, Taurus Data Science, Analytics Vita, uh, Kidding Nuggets, and Datacam. So, uh, Paru, uh, glad to have you join my podcast. Thank you, James. Pleasure. Okay, so, so I want to start out talking about your educational background. So, I saw that you study uh, electrical engineering at the National Institute of Technology at Hamipur. So can you, uh, you know, describe your academic experience? Yes. Uh, so I am an electrical engineer uh, by my qualification. Uh, so there are a bunch of uh, premier institutes in India and NITs uh, are one of them. So I, for four years, I studied electrical engineering with uh, some amount of programming in C. And I also had a subject on neural networks when I look back which I look back uh, today, it, it seems very interesting because I'm in that field only. So I was into core electrical. We used to have uh, subjects on power distribution. We used to have subjects on all electrical concepts. And and it was, uh, so that time my focus was to actually go into the power sector and work towards uh, it. And that's that's the typical aspiration of any electrical engineer in India. I see. And so, right, like you just mentioned, you work as a business analyst at uh, Tata Power India, which is, you know, in, in the in the energy sector for seven years. So can you talk more about this career phase? Yeah, so uh, I was, uh, so since I was into electrical engineering, this was a very obvious choice to go uh, and work in a power sector. And so... Uh, I was inducted into a department in Tata Power that was actually responsible for analysis and planning of the power distribution network of Delhi, which is the capital of India. So it was there uh, I actually learned how to you know crunch numbers, analyze them into insights and perform certain predictive analysis, etc. So even though I was working in a core electrical sector, my job basically uh, was to actually analyze data itself. So that was a very uh, nice job that I had because I actually got to work on some real problems with some real world data and the outcome of my results used to actually impact 
have an impact on actual the population of the country. So I think that was one of the biggest uh, and the best experiences of my uh, career so far. Mm, I see. And so I'm curious, um, when and how did you first become interested in, uh, well, uh, learning and writing about uh, sort of data science and, and machine learning? When, as I mentioned, uh, during my job, so my job actually involved a lot of uh, uh, data crunching and using SQL queries, etc. So, uh, but most of our work used to be done in Excel and some proprietary software. And I would always think, you know, like there has to be a better tool than Excel to actually uh, analyze stuff and uh, to actually be able to make sense out of such a lot of data. And so I just kind of started researching on my own. And then I realized um, there are tools available outside. There are some great languages available which can actually be used. And so from there itself, I started actually, you know, uh, reading about it, learning. And I have a habit of actually uh, documenting everything. Mm -hmm. So that time I started documenting in the form of handwritten notes. And... So one day I was just going through one a very nice blog post that was written on Medium and it was the first time that I came to know that something called Medium existed. And so from there I thought, you know, why not convert all those handwritten notes into uh, something for the web so that, you know, that will be kept over there and will not be lost. Mm -hmm. And that way the journey started actually. Yeah, definitely. And and definitely I like, agree like anything that that you know, that being kept local on your laptop it's not going to be useful unless it's really yeah. being publicized right and um, okay so one of the first uh, blog series that you start writing about was called a guide to machine learning in R for beginners uh, which you cover like you know, the fundamentals of machine learning introduction to R some uh, EDA work in R and a couple of uh, simple uh, algorithms like linear regression or just regression and decision trees. So um, what is the motivation for writing this sort of series? So um, if you look at all my blogs on Medium, uh, they actually have a pattern and like they kind of show my journey into this data science field. Mm. So it, since these are the initial blogs, so it was the phase in which I was actually learning. Mm -hmm. And so... While I was learning, I was also documenting things. And uh, once I doc, so if you look, so I started with fundamentals of machine learning because that I was learning about that. And then, so I picked up R initially as a language of choice mm -hmm. uh, because um, it's it's very a little easier to actually transition into R uh, because from the background that I had, uh, even though I had worked in C earlier, but. Uh, there was a course which I was doing at that time uh, when I was working in Tata Power and that actually dealt in R. So I also picked up R and R was a very intuitive language and a very nice statistical language. So because my notes were in R, so that is why I all my initial blog posts are in R and they all deal with some basics of machine learning. Gotcha. Uh, and these, are the, these were kind of my handwritten notes and so I converted all of them. So... Still, I refer to those if I have certain doubts in all these concepts. Perfect. Um, and so that uh, many of your articles also focus a lot on data visualization. Um, and so I'm just curious, you know, what are some of your, what are your top three favorite data visual, visualization libraries, uh, regardless of, of language and, and why? Initially, I actually started uh, with ggplot. Uh, 
because I was working with R. But then when I switched on to Python, uh, Matplotlib, like actually, I started with Matplotlib until today. It is kind of the default library mm-hmm. uh, that I initially used to plot anything. Uh, and then from Matplotlib, I went on to Seaborn because it was more flexible and it offered a lot of more choices. And today, most of my work, I do it with Plotly. Uh, because obviously it's more interactive and it has a lot more options and more variability. So all these languages are also in the order in which uh, I matured into my data visualization journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, But still, I give a lot of emphasis to Matplotlib because then as it is, you know, like for all of us, it's the first library that we get used to. And everything is actually built on Matplotlib, be it Seaborn or some other libraries. So for major works, I use Plotly. But then when I start analyzing any data set initially for the first time, I still use Matplotlib or Seaborn. Gotcha. So Matplotlib, Seaborn and Plotly, the, the, yes. the, the big one. And, gotcha. and, and sometimes I also use Tableau if I don't want to code and want to just like kind of do a quick EDA of uh, data so then for quickly all those things or i have to create a dashboard i also use tableau for sure yeah i, I saw that you also uh, written a little bit about yeah sort of yeah, um, doing database on, on tableau so that's that's a that's a um that's a good um sort of um exposure to to that technology as well exactly mm-hmm. and then you also have written um, many articles on the topic of uh, machine learning interpretability which I guess like has been gaining a lot of popularities in, I guess like last year. So, uh, in your opinion, you know how how will some of the tools and techniques that you have talked about in your in your writing will be adopted in the industry in twenty twenty. Um, so I think this is a very pressing question today about the concept of whole machine learning interpretability and data ethics and everything, uh, more so even after GDPR actually came into picture. And uh, that's because I think today machine learning models are being you know used to make a lot of decisions for people. Mm-hmm. So it's machine learning models who are deciding whether you'll get a loan or not, or whether you'll get this insurance or no, not. Or So these are the things which actually directly affect people. And since uh, it does so, uh, it, it becomes all the more important to ensure that these predictions are fair and not discriminating. So a lot of reports that came out last year that how uh, the facial recognition software is created by certain companies are biased towards a specific gender and specific race. And so if we are, so people like us who are advocates of machine learning and data science, and we uh, tell people that how you can use machine learning to solve your problems. But then if we have things like these, where you're not able to actually explain uh, the decisions, the models, then these technologies are of no use. Because once it's into, it'll be put into production and it's going to affect people's lives, you have to make sure and you have to take the responsibility that, uh, you know, kind of like with this power comes a responsibility mm-hmm. to ensure that all these predictions are fair and not discriminating. And for this, interpretability is very important because you got to explain the decision of your model. If you're not able to explain why this model predicted that you'll get a loan or not, then I don't think that model actually serves any purpose. Mm, I see. Yeah, and and uh, um, I, I guess like for the for the people who like had no knowledge about uh, this domain, what could be the first like 
uh, resource that you could recommend them to kind of read up about reg regarding interpret so, interpretability? Yeah. Okay, so there's a, a couple of very good, I think, uh, resources to available, but uh, there's a very, uh, but then a lot of them are kind of difficult to ingest, but there's a book on machine learning uh, interpretability. So I've also written a couple of blogs on this. Mm -hmm. So uh, I could direct people to those. Yep. I think the one that you've given in the link, uh, which deals with different aspects of machine learning. So like, there is uh, one uh, blog that I've written on interpretable machine learning. Mm -hmm. So that actually uh, gives you a lot of certain tools that are available that you can use for your models. Uh, so for example, there's Line, there's Shapley, there's Permutational Importance. These are some of the open source libraries that are present that you can use to interpret your models. But there's one uh, book also that's, uh, and there's, there's a great paper by Doshi Velez and Kim, mm -hmm. who, which goes into the details of uh, machine learning interpretability. And then there's a whole book on interpretable machine learning by Christoph Molnar, which is like a beautiful book that's written on it in yeah. a very easy to understand format. So I guess my go-to resource would be Interpretable Machine Learning Book by Christoph Molnar. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely link that in the show notes so people can, can kind of learn about it. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Awesome. So you um so next uh you you written two articles about using a Jupyter notebook and Jupyter Lab for data science, and then you you make an argument that Jupyter Lab will soon take over uh the the, the notebook products. Okay, uh, so can you uh, elaborate a bit on that argument? Yeah, sure. So um so like all of us, uh, I think all of us have used Jupyter Notebook for when we either start with our data science or currently also a lot of people use the kind of dependent on Jupyter Notebooks. And the fact that we can write our codes, we can inspect our own results, we can even get rich outputs. Uh, I think these features have actually made Jupyter Notebooks very popular. But then uh, there are certain limitations of Jupyter Notebooks. For instance, a lot of things work standalone. Uh, so you have a, you do have an editor, you do have uh, a terminal, but everything is in like in isolation. So what Jupyter Lab does is it actually kind of uh, combines all of the good features of notebooks into one and provides some other uh, great uh, new features also. For instance, like there's a drag and drop. You can drag and drop your cells in the notebook. You can auto complete this tab auto completion. Uh, you can have extensions. The the Jupyter Lab extensions are actually very very good. Like for you have direct extension to GitHub or Google Drive. So so the basic idea of Jupyter Lab actually is to uh, bring all the building blocks of a classic Jupyter notebook and plus some new enhancements also. And even the the Jupyter team, the project Jupyter team actually wants to like do away with Jupyter notebook slowly and uh, only you know keep jupyter lab because jupyter lab is jupyter notebook plus mm -hmm. extra so mm -hmm. it makes more sense to use so it's like jupyter notebook 2.0 so it just makes sense to actually use jupyter lab now and mm -hmm. i think a lot of people are actually using it also and once i think they started using it i think they've realized uh, the the usage of jupyter lab over jupyter notebook yeah i um I guess one when one one of the things that I stand out for me from from Jupyter Lab is it sort of resemble like a an actual um, ID right an actual development yeah. environment um, 
you know something along the lines of like Visual Studio Code, for example, for for yeah. the data science. Yeah. So, kind of have that uh, that UI, uh, which you can see like the project directory on the left, and you can see your code on the right, and then you have a debugger down down at the um, at the bottom, kind of really keep it good. You know, just they have Markdown mm -hmm. uh, support also. You can write your Markdown files, and you can see. Uh, so all these were not there in Jupyter Notebook, and for that you have to use multiple other things. But now they've like kind of a collaboration, they put everything into one, uh, which was required also from such a long time. And also they'll be, as they said, I was going through their site also, they're also going to introduce some other features also. Gotcha. Through uh, as time progresses. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Um, well, yeah, I uh, I direct people to the, to the piece that you wrote about Jupyter Labs and kind of, kind of see how, how do you can set that up and, and maybe play around with it. And um, <clears throat> awesome. So you have written two articles about recommendation system. Um, one is on sort of the overview of different approaches. And the second one is like a, the process of designing and building recommended system pipeline. So this is a, this is a topic that really uh, resonates well with me because I'm sort of doing research on, on, on this field. So in your opinion, you know, what are some of the common challenges of bringing recommended system from prototype to, into uh, production? So I feel, uh, so during the prototyping stage, uh, the focus is more on data cleansing and exploration, feature engineering, and getting good performance with models, etc. But uh, also a very important thing to keep in mind is when you take all this to production, so there's, there's always an evolving data set, and you'll have to tune it and retrain it, and then you have to use it on actual users. So, uh, so there's this whole concept of, get, you know, the data coming in and then you have to tune and retrain your data set and then get the feedback. So this whole loop thing, mm -hmm. uh, this is, I think, I think one of the most challenging parts, for example, if you even see Netflix, uh, you create a model, everything, you put it into your production stage and then there is the, the continuous inflow of data and you have to make sure that the feedback is taken in. And then you have to also make sure that what you're giving out to the audience is actually correct. Because uh, if you are going to show people on Netflix something that they don't like and you're going to recommend that, that's going to be very bad. Right. So this is, I think, one of the very important aspects of recommendation system and this whole recommendation industry in particular. Because nowadays I'll see a lot of people actually... Uh, just going out in the open and saying, you know, what YouTube is recommending, is, it's like recommending something, things which you don't like. Why is it YouTube recommending us this video? So to be able to make sure that you're always correct uh, is also a big challenge. Mm -hmm. So uh, so it's like, uh, so you have to tackle the problem for uh, data to user. Mm -hmm. And so there's this data to user problem, but then we also need to build something for the user to interact with and, you know, so that user can select relevant ingredients, then submit them, give us feedback. So it, it has to be, so recommendation system, in fact, I feel it's kind of a whole, it's a complete ecosystem in itself. So you need to have a front end, you need to have a back end, and then you have to make sure that the data pipeline is regularly updated, the data is continuously coming and uh, there's no drift in it. So, so that is what I feel. Yeah, I mean, I definitely a, a lot of those points you mentioned is is, uh, is very relevant, and, and I think also another another important part of uh, productionizing recommendation model is, is the the choice of um, 
the choice of evaluation matrix, right? Maybe sometimes you yes. you choose like a matrix that doesn't necessarily correlate well with like user, you know, user make decision sometimes going negative, maybe like negatively correlated with yes. what we're trying to, to improve. Because, because the end user, so it's, it's like the humans which are mm -hmm. the end users and, you know, and things, if, if it's not according to what they want, uh, things can backfire. So it's a very tricky situation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, great. Thank, thanks for sharing some of those uh, some of those thoughts on, on kind of uh, surrounding the recommended system ecosystem. Uh, yeah, so so let's switch here a little bit and talk about you know some of the data science project that you've done. Um, yeah. one, one of your most popular popular project is called building a simple chatbot from scratch in Python using NLTK. So can you talk more about the motivation and process of doing this? Yeah. So uh, this was uh, during my initial one of my initial blog, but it was well received by people. Uh, no, it was during the time when I was learning about natural language processing and uh, the first library that everybody is taught when they're studying NLP that time. So was NLTK and now definitely. So there has been like a huge uh, advancement in the NLP sector. So today we have things like BERT and etc. But that in the first thing that everybody was taught is NLTK and so was I. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so when I was uh, going through an LTK, uh, I found it nice, but then I thought, how do I apply what I learned? So it's good. I, I can read this entire textbook and I can copy the codes here, but then it only makes sense if I could just, you know, use it to create a small mini project. Mm -hmm. And so that time, uh, it was just, uh, it was just a thought. So, so let's just create a very simple question answering uh, tool that I thought. But then kind of I just worked on it and it's kind of made a very simple chatbot. So it wasn't something big deal. It was a very simple chatbot. It wasn't even giving correct answers all the time. But then I was happy because I was able to actually utilize what I learned into whatever a small, you know, real kind of a project that I could. So that helped me to actually understand a lot of things which I wouldn't have otherwise understood by only reading the documentation. And that is something which I advise to everybody who comes into data science space. Try using whatever you learn to create a small mini project mm -hmm. because that way, whatever you learn, it gets ingrained into your mind because reading documentation and all or just uh, doing the same examples over and over again, what is already provided to you, uh, you're going to forget that very easily. But if you do it, do something new and something on your own, uh, you will always remember and you'll always understand it better. So my idea was simply that. And then you, you actually continue, I guess, like sort of around that same project with another two-part series called Building a Conversational Chatbot with uh, Raza Stack and Python. And you actually deploy that project on Slack. So can you talk about the end-to-end uh, -end process of doing this uh, convers conversational chatbot? Yeah, so, so when I published my article on NLTK chatbot, uh, a lot of people gave very good reviews, but there was one section of people who said that what this chatbot doesn't do anything. It doesn't respond. Uh, it's not a conversational uh, AI bot. And so then I thought, uh, okay, so like it's time to actually do some real chatbot stuff. So when I was searching, I came across uh, this way, uh, good talk uh, 
on Rasa. So it was given at Pi Data Berlin, uh, I guess around 2017. Uh, so their uh, head of engineering w- ha- was giving a talk on uh, Rasa. And that's something that actually uh, struck because that was something that I was looking for. So I didn't want to reinvent the wheel by, you know, just going and creating something from scratch. I wanted to use the open source stuff that was available and then to create a, a chatbot out of whatever is available. Not, I didn't want to just, you know, go into the very basic details of and start writing libraries myself. Mm. So Rasa is a very good open source uh, uh, tool for actual developers to actually create this context, contextual AI assistant in chatbots. Mm. And, uh, it makes the entire process of creating and deploying shortcuts very, very easily. So uh, it has this modules which are present, like it has a Rasa core and it has a Rasa stack uh, and then it has the Rasa core. So you have to give in, so kind of, uh, so there are actually two important uh, things that you have to keep in mind is when you create a chatbot using Rasa. So, you have to first teach your bot to actually understand your inputs. Mm-hmm. So you feed in your training data and you have to, uh, you make the chatbot understand what you are trying to say. So that, that's one part of it. And next part is dialogue generation. That is what the chatbot will, uh, resp- how the chatbot responds to what you say. So these are the two two things that uh, is that I used for creating a chatbot. And then both these modules, like teaching a chatbot to understand what you are saying, uh, there's a whole process for that. And I think Raza actually simplifies this uh, very nicely. So it's a whole machine learning concept. Everything is this done. You just have to create your training data. You just have to feed in it. And all this stuff like uh, tokenizing the data set, transforming into vectors, and classification is done by their NLU model. Mm-hmm. It has a Raza NLU model. And then for the dialogue generation part, again, uh, again, there is a machine learning model that I guess they use LSTM for that, uh, that trains your model, evaluates it, and then outputs what you're trying to say. So, uh, so that way, so then I thought that why only, uh, let's just like kind of deploy it on Slack to see if it actually works. Mm-hmm. And it did work actually nicely that time. And so that way, so then I use this, these articles to tell those people who are asking, who are telling me when I created the NLTK chatbot, yeah. so look, I created an end-to-end chatbot here and it's that it's possible for any, everybody. But so what I want to say is like, it's very simple to create chatbots using Rasa today. But important thing is if one should understand the whole concept behind, you know, like uh, chatbots, uh, in general and NLP in particular. So if you have this basic NLP, natural language processing knowledge, then you can do variety of stuff with that. And mm-hmm. chatbot is just one part of it. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it's, it's always smart to take advantage of some of the, you know, existing platform open source project to to uh, to, to use this instead of re- re- reinventing from scratch. And it seems like, in this case, Rasa is, is one of those technologies that are really helpful uh, in 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 uh, building this project for you. So I uh, yeah, I'll be sure to include it. You know, kind of you know the, yeah. the, the two articles so people can get a chance to take a look at what you did and maybe play around with with Rasa and uh, and, and create then, their own versions of chatbots for anything for ordering coffees for for 
sports updates, for anything. So mm-hmm. it's that interesting and easy. Gotcha. Um, uh, in in another project, you did uh, satellite imagery imagery analysis with Python to examine the vegetation cover of a region with the help of satellite data. Uh, so yeah, would you mind uh, quickly going over that one? Yeah. So uh, like um, I mentioned in that article also that you know uh, apart from doing machine learning for your professional life and whatever work, you should always try and use these tools for common good and for some humanitarian goods uh, for humanitarian good also and uh, deforestation and stuff like this if you could use machine learning to predict things like when flood is going to strike or when there's going to be you know fires etc there could be no better use of machine learning than that so i was that time searching for some kind of projects this real life project and then i stumbled upon uh, this uh, articles from NASA everywhere where they were actually actually using it for satellite imagery, how they were using the images uh, from the satellite to actually infer about whether there's a deforestation happening in a region or things are improving and stuff like that. So this is a very interesting project and I'm very proud of it. Uh, so the idea simple uh, is just like you, you get your uh, images from the satellite. So there's a lot of satellites around us and all of them are taking pictures every second. And so there are some APIs through which you can actually pull out those images depending upon which month and which day of the year it is. And you then extract coordinates from this, your longitude and latitudes. And uh, once you have that information with you, then you can actually use it to do, uh, explore the satellite imagery. So there's this concept of uh, NDVI that's called Normalized Difference Vegetation Index. Mm-hmm. And that's an index actually which actually tells you whether uh, there is uh, the area has sparse vegetation or area has a dense vegetation or area has less vegetation. And you kind of calculate that uh, index from the satellite images that you have. Mm-hmm. And that has a very nice concept like how do you actually calculate it so it's that your uh, pictures or the images that you uh, get from your satellite uh, so what actually happens is the vegetation in an area actually reflects a lot of uh, near infrared light so that we cannot see as humans and as compared to the visible red light so if there's a lot of vegetation, there'll be a lot of near infrared light. And if there's going to be sparse vegetation, there'll be less of that near infrared light. And by actually calculating the difference between the two, you can actually know whether, you know, things are going bad for a region or it's going good. So I think uh, this is a project which actually uh, it's kind of an end-to-end machine learning project because you have to get the data yourself. You have yeah. to analyze data and then you actually come to certain conclusions. And then you can actually forward these things to maybe some uh, people or there are some agencies who are working for this, and this can really help them. Yeah, yeah. When I when I read to like the, the article, I was very impressed with like I, I guess like you working with JSON data, right? Like so that's that was very, okay. very different from from traditional other type of data set, and seems like you. You also have have some very nice visualization about the um, yeah. The, the, there was this uh, Python Rust Stereo library, so that mm-hmm. actually converts those satellite images into .tiff okay. uh, format, and that is the format that uh, then we use to actually uh, extract the information from that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that looks very impressive. 
Uh, awesome. Yeah. So the next project, I guess, very interesting. So it's called uh, Recreating Get Miter in Tableau, a humble tribute to Hans Rosling. So but essentially in this one, uh, you try to build a, a, a Tableau visualization of the famous Get Miter dataset from Hans Rosling delivered in his TED Talk. So how did you go about doing this? Uh, so I think all of us who are into data visualization actually have heard or, or know about Hans Rosling and what a great storyteller he was. So, uh, and everybody, I think most of us have actually seen that iconic uh, video of Hans Rosling of 200 countries in 200 years in four minutes. Uh, so that was because it was done in Gapminder. Uh, so when I started learning Tableau games, all my... Uh, Articles actually start when I learn something, I put them down into as an article. So the first thing that struck me was uh, when I saw the bubble plots was, can I convert that visualization into this? And uh, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of similarity between Gapminder software and Tableau. So I thought it'll be great if I could just, you know, recreate that into Tableau. And then I started uh, researching for it. And then I did hit and trial on Tableau and did for at least one week, I was doing it, you know, trying all possible combinations and all possible options that were available in Tableau. But then finally, I could actually get it. And uh, then I thought, then now let's write it in the form of an article and let the world know that you can also recreate the stuff. And a lot of people actually did that. And uh, they used to write on LinkedIn and tag me and saying that, you know, they felt very nice when they actually recreated this visualization because most of them didn't even know about Gapminder, etc. That what it is, but uh, first they read my article, then they went back to Hans Rosling mm-hmm. video, and then like it was something that they felt very proud of that they could actually uh, read an article and could convert it into something that was really working. Yeah. And they also knew. Then they also came to know about Hans Rosling and everything that he did in the sector. So, so it was this way how this actually came into being. This whole article. Yeah, I see. Just curious, what is like the the biggest challenge of actually doing doing the the animation? Um, or, or just wondering if that if, in Tableau did that for yourself, or do you have to do any uh, configuration? No. Um, so even Tableau actually makes it. Uh, it does make it simple, but then Tableau has a lot of options, right. and sometimes it can even get confusing. So it's just through little experience and practice that uh, you actually get a hang of it because uh, there's, there's a lot of things in Tableau which can do a lot of things, but then you're not aware of it once you do it yourself. Uh, another really good analysis that you did is called Music General Classification with Python. And this one shows how to analyze an, an audio slash music signal. Um, so can you, um, yeah. you know, talk about it? So, uh, so again, like images, I think audio is just another set of data that we have. And it makes sense to actually go into depth of that and just to realize like what it is made up of and how you can use it to do uh, something. And especially there are companies like Spotify who are into this business. Mm-hmm. So I was reading an article on Spotify actually and how their whole machine learning uh department actually works on you know making this experience so good for the users and listeners and how their spotify's discover weekly services there and 
people just feel that you know it spotify knows them more than even them themselves because it recommends songs that they actually want to hear so uh during that when i was uh, studying with spotify and how they go about doing this uh then i actually thought that why not uh, do something uh, an article on actually the audio processing part and how python can be used so it does look very difficult when people think about it but then it's very simple and there are libraries like librosa and uh, which actually makes this whole thing very simple and ultimately everything can be broken down into numbers and so is our audio and videos and so if you can just break down into numbers and and then you can use to your traditional machine learning what you normally use mm-hmm. you can get some wonderful results for audio as well and for video then for images so it's like data is everywhere around you uh, you don't even need to you know go and scrape out so you can uh, use the data that you have in your systems uh, convert them using python into numbers and then analyze stuff so in this uh, blog i also uh, showed how you could create an audio signal so that was very simple so we know we've been reading about sine cause uh, in our maths and when you create them and you know all frequency and all these stuff we we came across in a high school we study about them in engineering we study about them but then we just don't realize that it's all these things only when you put it together they just create an audio signal mm-hmm. it's it's just that audio signal is nothing more than that and so that thing is important you know so so that is the main crux of this article was so ultimately it's the normal machine learning modeling technique that you use but then you have to use how you can actually get some important information from your audio Mm-hmm. and from that you actually get the data and then you use your normal ml pipeline that you have it so so the important work part of this article like i had also mentioned the article now normally you can use your models what you want but important part was how to actually extract information from audio yeah and after that you do whatever you like from that it's like when we listen to songs we don't realize that the single <laughs> single line of a song will contain such a lot of information mm-hmm. but as it happens it has there are a lot of features there are crossing rates uh, spectral centroids roll offs and so there's so many different features mm-hmm. uh, for a very small uh, audio uh, audio also so that's pretty interesting definitely definitely uh, yeah great well, what i was saying is like there have, there have been a lot of tutorials that i've seen on the web about like working with audio data so this one is just pretty um, um, Pretty, pretty nice in terms of like you know showing the importance of uh, you know extracting features from audio data so yeah I just just want to say that um, you also have done a couple couple of projects on computer vision so you did a, you did a, a face detection project uh, using OpenCV and then you also did a image segmentation project using uh, the the circuit image module so can you uh, quickly go over these two tutorials Yeah so the face detection with python so so that was kind of an introductory uh, tutorial more towards uh, the beginners who wanted to get into wanted to learn about opencv module and then how face detection takes place and but then i made sure that i also uh, wrote about 
like it shouldn't be just a tutorial you know like you just feed in your data and then it will recognize your face but then what is what happens behind the scene also like what are the classifiers the hard classifier and how do you actually go about detecting how does that algorithm work and how it detects so it, it's more like towards beginners who actually want to get started into computer vision and want to use OpenCV for that so this is useful for them and the other one was image segmentation that was again using Python sidekit image module. So I was surprised uh, when I wrote this article, a lot of people were not aware the Scikit-Learn also has, uh, there's a sidekit image module in, available and you can do some wonderful stuff with that also, so like filters and uh, things like, you know, uh, thresholdings and mm -hmm. a lot of methods that are available. So this was more into uh, kind of a, introduction or more than an introduction towards the psychic image module and it's kind of a more of a kind of a documentation stuff like where people can use this and do some stuff like contour segmentations especially on pictures so these two are not those advanced ones but then if somebody's looking for resources to just get started i think they'll be useful for them into computer vision yeah yeah i think it's just really good stuff because if you, if you search the web on like tutorials on sort of object detection or, or like you know object segmentation is all about like using keras and you know convolutional yeah. networks so i think it's very important yeah. to to just like have tutorials that you like you know simple libraries such as you know the one that you, you did here to to just did like a very quick prototype for for the um, you know yeah, so, demo so it, this this has code also so a person can run the code and see for themselves and then when they have the basic understanding then they could go for some higher uh, techniques for computer vision gotcha and then uh, uh, I, I just want to talk to um, about another tutorials um, this one is called uh, predicting the future with Facebook profit and so you build a forecasting model to predict the number of views for your medium articles so yeah just uh, can, can you unpack this tutorial yeah so uh so that's the time that i wrote about this so there was uh, a lot, i was hearing a lot about the profit library from facebook and about the wonderful uh things that it was doing and how people found it really useful so uh so i read this white paper that was published by those creators of facebook uh, the profit library and they had some very uh, valuable things that they said in that paper. So one was like that these fo uh, automatic forecasting techniques can be very hard to tune and they're sometimes kind of too inflexible to, you know, to be able to be incorporated for useful assumptions. And secondly, they said that a lot of analysts that are working in companies or for data science tasks uh, do not have this domain experience in time series. They will have in other uh, specific fields but they don't have those training in time series. So it kind of gets very difficult to deal with the time series data. And so this created this very nice profit library, which is kind of very easy to use and has a lot of inbuilt features that you can use. So then I thought like, uh, so how do I use this? So a lot of time people use the stocks data for time series, but I didn't want to do that because it has been used a lot of times. So it's about predicting the stocks and in future what is going to be the value so i thought why not do something else and so i was just looking for data and then i just realized by since i'm i've been writing in medium for such a long time now i have this considerable amount of data of my medium views mm -hmm. so why not use this data to actually predict something 
so that is the way. So again, this was an introduction to Facebook's profits, but then I used some real data. And uh, the best part was that I could also, uh, so if I, uh, so I predicted uh, this, my views for like for a month and then I went back and saw whether my results actually were near what I predicted or not. So I also, you know, it was kind of a validation technique also for me. Yeah. So that is why I did it on my own data set. Did your results uh, achieve a good... Uh, a, a low, <laughs> yeah, low, low. not. <laughs> I think uh, they're pretty close. They were pretty close, I would say. Not exactly. But then uh, I did not do any tuning or I just did a basic thing. But, but they were very satisfactory. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Um, yeah, this is this looks very interesting. So that's why, that's why I've been asking. Um, okay, okay, so let's uh, move on and talk about sort of, you know, your current job. So you've been working as a data science evangelist at H2O.ai since uh, July 2019. Um, for yeah. the audience who are not familiar with the company, can you give a brief overview about H2O and your responsibilities? Okay, uh, so H2O.ai is a mountain view based startup. And uh, it's a startup that actually deals, uh, kind of we say that we make AI, we use AI to do AI. So it's the creator of an open source and an enterprise level product. So one of our uh, most important product is called driverless AI. So a driverless AI is our actually flagship product, which is uh, an automated machine learning platform. And Apart from driverless AI, we also create open source software that's called H2O. So H2O is actually the name of the company also and the name of the product also. And we are into automated machine learning and automated AI and we offer our services to companies who would want to actually uh, use data to get insights. My role there is a data science evangelist. So evangelist is essentially a person who popularizes the product. So uh, my job is to interact with the community and people and to spread the word about data science in general and H2O's products in particular. And I help people understand how to use the product, how to use them for their data sets. And I organize meetups and I write for them so that, you know, people can understand uh, how to actually uh, go about using their product. Actually, evangelism, I feel it's it's isn't a job title. I think it's just a way of life. Mm -hmm. So before even joining H2O, I was evangelizing data science. But after joining H2O, I'm evangelizing data science along with H2O.ai's products. A flagship product of H2O is called Flow, which is, uh, is a web-based interface. And in, in an article, you, you describe Flow as a hybrid of a graphical user interface plus a read-evaluating loop plus a storytelling environment for the uh, EDA and machine learning workflow. So, you know, can, can you unpack that? Yeah. Yeah, so just like I mentioned, uh, H2.ai has two products. So one is an open source and one is the enterprise product. So that is driverless AI. So the open source is called H2O. And so H2O is completely open sourced and it uses interfaces. So the backend is in Java, but then the it has interfaces in R, in Python, in Scala. And but the people who don't want to actually code, 
and who are not comfortable in any of these languages can also use a web interface and that web interface is actually called flow so you can simply use a browser you can point to the local host and then you can just communicate with the h2 engine and you don't have to then deal with any of the languages like r or python so this is a very useful tool for you to actually uh, get into machine learning and you can just quickly model all of your data using all the algorithms that are available with the h2o library xgboost gbms and all of these random forest and ensembles and simply through point and click so you don't have to do any programming you mm -hmm. can just point and click you can ingest the data you can do the modeling you can use all the algorithms present and then you can just get the results and you can even uh, visualize stuff there and you can even um, use certain interpretability techniques also like pdp to see like which is your uh, which variables are most important which are not all through point and click and without any coding so that's the whole that's the so that's one interface and there are other interfaces also if you're comfortable in python you can use that if you're comfortable in now you can even use that and, and so you already talked a little bit about that driverless ai which uh, based on my understanding it helps automate some of the challenging and uh, repetitive tasks in uh, the applied data science workflow and you actually have written a bit about one of the features in driverless AI called uh, bring your own recipe, which um, essentially enable the, the, the data science or domain expert to customize the driverless AI according to their business needs, right? So can you talk about this in uh, more detail? Yeah. So just like you mentioned, H2O driverless AI is an artificial intelligence platform for automatic machine learning. So, uh, so some of the tasks which are actually kind of very repetitive uh, when we do machine learning manually, like for instance, feature engineering, model validation, model tuning, model selection, and even model deployment, all these are taken care of by H2O driverless AI. So right from ingesting data to auto-viz, so there's this one uh, property that it can auto-visualize the data there itself. Uh, you can get a documentation automatically and then it does all the things under the hood right from feature engineering and from validation tuning and then it can also deploy so this is whole driverless ai now since it's an automated machine learning platform a very natural question for others is to think that since it's automated it's like it's just so whatever uh is like built into it that is it it's fixed so if there's a company which has a different use case or kind of different business scenario so what are they going to do so for that we introduced a feature called bring your own recipes so recipes are actually customizations and these are the extensions to the existing driverless ai platform so like they're nothing you can just they're just python code snippets and you can write those code and you can upload to driverless ai so for instance, uh, there's a company which deals in recommendation systems. So they could just write recipe for that. So mm -hmm. there's a whole process how to write it. And then they could just feed it into the driverless AI system. So inherently what driverless AI will do, it will use all the existing uh, frameworks that is in place and it will use your recipe to actually uh, give a solution to your business problem. So there's actually a repository of about 100 such recipes, so there's a recipe for sentiment analysis, there's a recipe for recommender system, there's a recipe for fraud detection. So there are like a lot of recipes and these are all open source. You can use one of them or you can create your own if you know how to write code in Python. 
and and yes you can just kind of plug in into driverless ai so it's an automated platform but then it is you can also customize it as per your needs so that's the whole concept like behind bring your own recipes and i see that this can probably have a very very appealing for 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 folks who you know who want to focus on the more exciting part yeah. of data science right so for instance there is a model so there is a company and which uses a particular model and that model is not in driverless ai so it's not an issue they can use their own model they can write their own code and use that model and then we can just feed it into driverless ai so it's that simple perfect um and another core products of h2o is automl which uh, essentially is the automation of the end to end process of applying machine learning to real world problems and so you you have written a piece which is a deep dive about about you know this product before so Uh, can you just quickly go over the benefits of using AutoML? Yes. Um, so I think AutoML is making a lot of uh, uh, noise today, especially last year. Also, a lot of companies are into AutoML now. Even we have Google's AutoML, and a lot of this. So essentially, I think AutoML is uh, is something that's actually changing the face of ML-based solutions today. Uh, so. how it can be useful for a company to use auto ml solutions and to auto ml in particular is uh, so such tools what they can help uh, both the categories of uh, data scientists so even if you are a beginner novice data scientist this just gives you a simple wrapper function and it performs a lot of tasks that would require you know a lot of lines of code and if you are a seasoned data scientist who has a lot of experience you can use auto ml and this actually will free up your time and you can focus on other aspects of data science pipeline like for instance data preprocessing feature engineering and stuff so auto a lot of people are averse to using auto ml but i feel auto ml in a way actually helps it is there to help data scientist to actually uh, do some of the repetitive tasks uh, that they are doing today and uh, another main important reason of using automated machine learning platforms today maybe because there's a lot of uh, demand for machine learning experts but the supply is actually limited and, and i think this shortage of experience in season data scientists they can be taken care with auto ml so you can use auto ml as as a tool there has to be data scientists but then you can use auto ml and which could just help the data scientists in to taking decisions easily this auto ml how how you with like sort of the um I'm just curious, like like model yeah. model selection in terms of like maybe it helps too. Like uh, so, for example, uh, it takes care of uh, like a lot of things. So maybe uh, tuning. So okay. hyperparameter tuning is taken care by itself. So it will create a lot of models itself and the back, and then it will decide which is the best model. So you don't have to keep tuning your models every time. I see. Uh, so that is one important thing which actually saves a lot of time. Uh, I guess there's there's probably debate on both the pros and cons of using yes. automated machine yes. learning. Yes, so uh, because yeah. a lot of people they feel that this is going to take away the jobs of data scientists, which is not the actual case of using AutoML. But AutoML is not there to actually replace data scientists. Mm-hmm. It's like you require data scientists to actually use AutoML. Person should have a knowledge of actually machine learning to use AutoML. Otherwise, how would they know? But there's some tasks you know which are uh, like data preprocessing. So such tasks actually require a lot of time, and if such things can be automated, so essentially today auto ML has not—it's uh, not something that can completely take uh, over the entire machine learning pipeline. 
Mm-hmm. You require human intervention today also, but it just automates some of the parts. Mm-hmm. And maybe in future, the idea is to actually automate everything. But today, it's not that case. So it's just kind of automating certain parts of the machine learning pipeline, which otherwise is very tedious and takes a lot of time. So that's the whole thing about it. And just making it easier to people from diverse backgrounds to come into machine learning. Yeah, definitely. Then. You know, there's, there's a common common sentiment in sort of practitioners. They they spend like eighty percent data cleaning and ten yes, percent exactly. actually doing model. So it seems like the introduction of this type of you know uh, framework and slash slash technology is gonna really uh, alleviate the problem and then allows them to actually focus on more the the the, um, the, the business yes. impact of, of their uh, data science uh, projects, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So besides your your work at H2O and you know your writing, you also quite active on cargo, uh, and you recently did a very comprehensive an- analysis of the 2019 cargo survey to figure out the women's representation in machine learning in data science, and I believe that the cargo kernel that you built also won the best prize in, in the cargo contest for this survey data. So. You know, would you mind revealing your secret sauce for effective data visualization and storytelling as illustrated in this analysis? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I actually, I always love the EDA part of any analysis. This is because I, I like data visualization a lot. And so, when I got this data, such a lot of data and real data, so I was actually tempted to dive into it and see what it had to show. So my uh, kind of uh, whole strategy behind any visualize any uh, analysis is uh, always to use data visualization to get insights and not just colorful graphs. So I make sure that uh, the graphs that I create actually tell you highlights what is important instead of just highlighting the colors of the graphs. And since I write blogs a lot, so I kind of try to uh, converted into a story so you know it should have a starting it should have an ending mm-hmm. and it should, have, it should be linked so that what i did in my kernel also so i saw how women representation so my whole idea was to see whether the representation of women in machine learning and data science is increasing or decreasing and so i actually compared the data from last two years also of the service from 2017 and 18 as well and then i saw the, what was uh, there? Uh, how how was the data under different different headings like uh, country wise? How things are improving or they're not improving? Age wise, salary wise. So I kind of knitted it together into a whole story, yep. and also made sure that the visualizations are not too loud. So, for example, there are a lot of visualizations that we can use, but the entire purpose of uh, such analysis is actually insights and not, you know, pictures. Mm-hmm. So we should stick to something that's simple and that's something that actually helps people to understand what we're trying to say and you should not divert them. And lastly, I always keep in mind that ultimately who is going to be the end user of it. So even if a person with no machine learning data visualization background sees my analysis report, uh, he or she should be able to understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I always keep in mind when I'm analyzing that who is going to be the ultimate person who's going to read it. 
or it should be able to. So when I converted, I converted that into a blog also, that kernel. And uh, so that large people who are not even on Kaggle can read it and understand from the grass what I was trying to sell. So that, uh, so I kept in mind when I was writing the kernel, I had this thing in mind that I'm going to convert it into a, a blog also. So my visualizations and everything should be, you know, uh, there shouldn't be... I should be able to be understood by people who are not from machine learning background or from data science background or have no idea about what is data visualization. And that is what I do normally for most of my analysis tasks. Uh, yeah, and actually in that kernel, you, um, one, of, one of the key takeaways, because your story has a really, obviously, a strong focus, which is, you know, women's representation. Uh, so you, you, yeah. you one, of, one of the key takeaways that you, you said that the participants of women in the survey is still very low and has yes. not seen much. And that I have been saying everywhere, actually. Okay. So this is a very important thing that I always tell women is that, so the diversity is an issue, definitely. Uh, but the main problem is also that there's very less participation. So if there's going to be very less participation, our voices will never be heard because we, we barely make about 70 to 18% of the, the respondents on Kaggle. So the survey showed. So with such less participation, so if we want certain changes, of course, we'll be in such a big minority that, you know, things will not change. Mm -hmm. So for females to actually uh, come into the sector, first they'll have to start participating, participate in Kaggle, participate in conferences and meetups, become speakers. So this is all kind of a collaborative effort. And even women have to actually come forward. Yeah. So it's not that, you know, there's a lot of cry about saying that there's a disparity there. Uh, but also the women themselves will also have to encourage other women to come into this field. Yeah, and uh, that, that, that um, kind of relate pretty well to my next question, because you were talking about the uh, the importance of um, networking and, and joining conference and meetups. So you, you are also an organizer for... Uh, the Hyderabad chapter of the Women in Machining and Data Science Organization. Uh, so, how how would you you know describe the uh, the well, data science community in Hyderabad in general, and then the, the actual women community in in particular? So, so the data science community in Hyderabad is actually very very active, and Hyderabad is one of those uh, cities in India which is uh, very uh, active in the IT information technology front. And so we have the presence of all the major companies here. So that is also one of the reasons why the community is very active. So there's the a lot of meetups happening and a lot of events that takes place pertaining to data science, machine learning, and also to general software uh, engineering. So recently there was a large scale Python conference called PyConf. So we had a lot of good speakers and we had a great sessions. But there's something that was missing was, again, the participation of females. Uh, so there were like only two or three female speakers there in the PyConf. And again, uh, the meetups. So I also organized meetups on behalf of H2O.ai. And so initially, when I organized those meetups, uh, the ratio was very appalling. The male-female ratio, I mean, females were hardly like two or three. And even if they were there, they would never ask questions. So I kept thinking about this. So I used to be, I used to have a lot of questions at the end of meetups from, from men and there used to be like uh, undergraduate students, but not from females. Mm -hmm. And so it was that time I realized, so we need to create a separate uh, 
a group for women where they could come network and you know uh, come out and become speakers so that uh, they could also make use of all the facilities that are being made available via uh, meetups and conferences etc so erin liddell is a chief machine scientist at h2.ai and she's actually the founder of women in machine learning data science uh, community mm-hmm. and so when i saw that there was no such chapter in hyderabad and so i took the initiative and i created one and so till today we've had two successful meetups and what i also encourage in this meetups is for the members to come and uh, become speakers also so i ask them to go and speak because i think that is also one of the most important aspect of a data scientist because a data scientist should be able to communicate also so apart from having the necessary software engineering skills and analysis skills it's also equally important to be able to uh, tell the other person what is their analysis all about and that is where what we are trying to do essentially through this uh, chapter to encourage females more into this and help them you know Uh, understand the various things and how they could get jobs or how they could switch careers and higher education and stuff like that so so that is a whole motive behind organizing this chapter yeah i actually met uh, a little once when she was uh, okay visiting new york for like a for like a talk and uh, she did mention about you know the 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 uh, the, the active uh, happenings of of uh, you know the, the this community Uh, and I, I believe she also like get involved with our ladies. I think. Uh, and yeah, she's also the founder of our ladies. Also. Yeah, yeah, and I, I went. I went to like two different our ladies meetup and in in New York, and you know it's it's pretty pretty cool. It's just to kind of see the uh, environment and yes, you know different speakers and talk about that, uh, which is which is very really nice. Yeah, yeah. So recently, you were recognized as a LinkedIn's top voice. 2019 in the software development category. What does this recognition mean to you? Um, well, it definitely meant a lot. But uh, so when I was, so I have been active on LinkedIn and in this whole writing process. I just got active little after uh, I think during the end of 2018. So before that, uh, I wasn't that active. So I was because uh, I wasn't sure if I should be able to publish something. But then. When I started posting stuff on LinkedIn, people started liking it, and then you know this encouraged me to post again, and I could see how people could relate to me. But then I never had this thing in mind that I have to become a top voice, so I wasn't sharing this. I was just sharing for the love of it, and because people were, you know, they would say that you know they're definitely benefiting from this. And initially, I used to share my medium articles there, and then slowly from there, I used to share other important stuff that I had or worth sharing anything. Uh, LinkedIn has been a very important factor in like where I am today because I think it's given me both voice and visibility, and also platform to actually showcase my work. And uh, this is something that I tell others also that so LinkedIn is something where you can experiment something and you can put that out for people to see and you'll get some real time feedback. So in a way, it's started acting as a resume now. People are scouting for talent on LinkedIn. There are Uh, big uh, the HRs from companies who are looking people and they're contacting them there. So I think if made uh, correctly, if this platform is used, this is a lot of potential, and uh, it has definitely helped me a lot in giving me this opportunity to actually work 
uh, where I'm working today and to actually know a lot of people, to network with a lot of like-minded people, to get to know a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, people should also make use of this in the right way. Mm-hmm. Uh, not uh, like what I would normally tell people is to spend more t- uh, as compared to all other social networking sites, Medium is, uh, LinkedIn is something which should, which is something that actually gives something back to you as yeah. compared to the other. Gotcha. Uh, so that's what it has given me. And uh, to be even ranked with people. Uh, so this time, like there was Chip from NVIDIA and a lot of other people. I think it's, it's a big, big uh, <laughs> recognition Great. from LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, uh, I'm glad that you um, really emphasize the importance of you know the, the platform for for networking and, and personal branding yes. purpose, right? Essentially, it's great. It's yeah. great for that, right? Just curious. So, so you you put that keep on LinkedIn the medium. What do you think about like Twitter in general? So I I actually feel uh, Twitter is great because um, so it's not necessary that you have to tweet. But the, what I feel is a lot of data scientists and a lot of people into research are actually more active on Twitter than LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you follow them, you get to know lo- about a lot of things you get to hear on Twitter first. So for instance, uh, which library is coming out or which is the latest paper or which is the uh, latest research going on. There's a lot of things that I actually come to know through Twitter only nowadays. So I, I make sure I follow some good people, but I make sure to only follow people from data science only because yeah. uh, Twitter is something that you can get you distracted very, very easily also. Uh, but I feel a lot of uh, people into data science and machine learning happen to be really, really active on Twitter. And it's good to follow them because you get to know a lot of them, a lot of knowledge through Twitter directly. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I agree with you on uh, with, with the sentiments. I think there's two characteristics of, of you know Twitter users that I really like. The first one is a lot of smart people have like tweet storm, you know, so they have like one tweet and they have like a bunch of one uh, smaller tweets that go into that thread and become like a tweet storm that, uh, that yeah. just carry away the sharing knowledge. And the, the other one is like kind of live tweeting on when say like you go to conferences and you want to get up a share yes. a pictures or something like that. You, you, you live tweet with a hashtag and yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've been thinking about like kind of doing that. Uh, you know, when I, whenever I go to events, something might be an interesting way to yeah, to, to, it, to meet people. Actually, it's very interesting, especially sometimes you don't even know there's something taking place and then you see hashtag this thing happening and then you realize, oh my God, I just missed it. And okay, so let me just go and watch this or thing. So that's pretty useful. So so that is why I'm, I don't normally tweet a lot, but I definitely check once in a day, like what's going on in this whole Twitter community. Okay, great. Uh, well, Peru, uh, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the closing segment in which I'm going to uh, ask you three uh, rapid-fire questions and you can, you know, give uh, tactical advice for people who, uh, who are listening, okay? Okay. But the first question is that um, name three people in the uh, machine learning and, and data science universe uh, whose work you really admire. Um, okay, so one of them is going to be Rachel Thomas. Uh, she's one of the co-founders of FastAI, and I really like her opinions on data ethics. Uh, then is Andrew Smuller, and uh, he's actually the research scientist at uh, Columbia University. But it's, and he's also written a, some a very good book on introduction to machine learning with Python, and I really uh, 
really admire him for a lot of good things that he's done in this field, and especially as he's one of the co-developers of Cyclone. And thirdly, it's not a person, but it's a company that's hugging face. Uh, I really, really admire them for the fact that they're doing such a lot of things for democratizing NLP for everyone and for their open source contributions. Awesome. The second question is that, uh, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. Uh, I think it's a book that I think we already mentioned starting of the segment. It's Factfulness, I think. Uh, it's not typically will help people to develop analytical mindset, but it's definitely very important to actually see how stats and how visualizations can actually help you give a very different viewpoint mm-hmm. of any problem. And it also tells you how it is very important that you don't form a wrong hypothesis and how a wrong hypothesis can be costly. So no matter if you're into data science or not, Factfulness is one book that I recommend to anybody uh, who needs, who wants some a better analytical mindset. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, great to hear. I think I think at least two other guys has has recommend Factfulness. So yeah, yeah, people okay, probably, yeah. probably gotta gotta read it then. <laughs> Um, and then the last question is that um, imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Okay, this is something which I tell almost all the time that I say data science is a field that's fueled by passion, motivation, and hard work. Uh, so don't get missled by the hype around it and only come into this field if you're really passionate about data and numbers because. Uh, I think this becomes a very bigger tweet because the hype is going to just fizz out after some time. Well, awesome. Uh, well, Paru, thanks a lot for you know being a guest for my for my show. I really enjoy um, kind of learning about your your, your background, uh, you know, your journey into writing about ML and data science, some of your work with H2O as well as some of the initiatives that you've been advocating for for women representation in um, in the field. And so I'm, I'm glad that um, I had a chance to, to talk with you and allow you to kind of showcase some of those uh, projects that you've been working on. And I hope that other people who, who are listening might you know, have something uh, to take away with them as well. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, James. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. Thank you so much. Well... That's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.